You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, my name is Wesley Grogan, and today we're going to be reading Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. You can find that in the chairback Bibles in front of you on page 598. If you don't have a Bible or would read that when you take it home, please take that as a gift from us to you. Starting in verse 1. And he called to the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all about all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had a need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and asked him, Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get some provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and all ate and all were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell them, to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elder and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word, of him will the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes into glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Bear your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather in a safe place and worship you. 
thank you for your word and its truth. Just ask that you would really give us soft hearts to allow penetration of your word and ears open and tuned into you, Father. Give Jeremy clarity and just a peace when he speaks. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Wesley. I'll tell you what, I love a good Chinese buffet. <laughs> love a good Chinese buffet. And my favorite Chinese buffet of all time, I mean, if there was an AP top 10, Jeremy's favorite Chinese buffets of all time, there's a couple in Kansas City are good, but nothing compares to the Bamboo Buffet in Manhattan, Kansas, right off of Highway 18. You ever find yourself in K-State land and food, tell them I sent you. And make sure you help yourself to some of that walnut, shrimp, and lo mein. Mmm! It's fantastic. Uh, true story, I'm a lifetime member of Weight Watchers, um, in part because I always go to buffets. And um, <laughs> what that means is that... Uh, you sign up, you pay whatever, $15 a week, and you go and you get on the scale and you hold hands and sing kumbaya with a bunch of other people who say, I'm awful at eating food and I eat too much and I need help to hit my goal weight. And so I'm a lifetime member of that deal. And when I was in Manhattan and I was going to a meeting, the only real chance you have of eating a buffet is right after you get off that scale that day because you got six days to make up all those calories. And so I'm there just crushing the lo mein and the walnut shrimp and just noticing as I'm returning to the buffet line a time or two <clears throat> or four that there's people who are looking at me funny and I can't, I don't know why they're giving me these weird looks until I realized that I had my name tag still on. <laughs> Weight Watchers little icon. Hi, my name's Jeremy. <laughs> People like elbowing each other like, are we on candid camera right now? <laughs> the reason I'm bringing buffets up today, though, is not, it's not to get your Chinese buffet recommendations, though I'm happy to receive them after service. <laughs> But I think it's actually a great picture of how so many people approach Christianity, how people approach the Bible. See, the beauty of buffets, I mean, they're not even 100 years old yet. I looked it up. They got invented in like the 50s. Vegas is of all places. I mean, it's just brilliant. In our consumeristic, have-it-your-way cultures, buffets are brilliant because you, even if you're a picky eater, you're going to find something on there you like. I mean, granted, the mac and cheese has been there for like 72 hours, but if you like mac and cheese, there it is. Everybody can find something they like at the buffet. And the picture then that happens is the way that you and I approach a Chinese buffet can begin to bleed into how you and I approach the Bible. 
And you come to some passages and you think, oh, yeah, that's my jam. I love that part. I'm going to put a big helping of that on my plate. But then you come to passages like we see today and you go, I don't like that. None of that, please. And the mistake we can make is thinking that Jesus is some maitre d' at a buffet who says, yes, take what you want. Leave what you don't. Oh, you're a, you're a picky eater spiritually speaking? Well, that's okay. And I'm here to tell you today, that isn't Christian. And that's not how the Bible works. In our passage today, Luke, he's going to put three types of spiritual food on our plate. And what I'm warning you right now on the front end is, some of it may not be the stuff you would naturally pick. I mean, let me just be honest, some of it's stuff I don't pick either. Nobody wants this stuff. But we don't approach the Bible like a buffet We don't get to pick and choose which parts of Jesus is in his teaching. We prefer the way the Bible works, the way Christianity works, is we say, your will, your way. And if you want to be part of Jesus' people, if you are going to follow Christ, then you take whatever he serves. No picky eaters in biblical Christianity. And so let's, let's walk together to see the three types of food Luke is going to put on our plate today. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to chapter 9. In three movements, we'll walk through our text. The first one would be this. Jesus' disciples do Jesus' ministry Jesus' way. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to do his ministry His way. For those who are taking notes on your own, you might write down that first idea. Look with me right off the bat. Notice in verse 1, Jesus is calling his 12 together. Jesus empowering them to go out and share the good news. He wants them healing and proclaiming the gospel. And all of that sounds fine and dandy until you get to verse 3. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, don't take any basic necessities with you, thanks. Which, surprising, right? Literally, Jesus saying, don't take anything with you on your journey, which puts them at an immediate disadvantage. I mean, if Jesus is like this coach with the 12 saying, hey, guys, I've been showing you how to play ball, and I'm getting ready to launch you out. We've been having all the practices, and now it's game day, so go get them. If that's what Jesus is doing, it's like him saying, now go, but don't wear any shoes. (laughs) How am I supposed to play the game without shoes? Why can't I take the basic necessities? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think this is why Luke included this. As the 12 were going on mission... As they were to obey Jesus, they would not be going on their power or depending on themselves. 
the way Jesus wants the 12 doing ministry is he wants the 12 depending on him. That's this first little section of how Jesus wants ministry to happen. He wants his 12 depending on him. They're going to do his ministry his way. That takes faith. Skip ahead with me to verse 10 where we find that the 12, they've made it back. And they're sharing the highlight reel with Jesus. Hey, man, we saw some awesome things. My guess is they would be able to testify. I mean, you provided for us, Jesus, with these people here and the people there. And it's always just enough. And as is the case here at this part of Luke, there's always this huge crowd that wants to be around Jesus because he's healing and he's preaching and there's no healer and preacher like Jesus. And having, having then received the 12 back, going through some of the highlight reel, Jesus himself is caring for the crowd. He's preaching, he's healing, he's doing what he just sent the 12 to do, but it gets late in the day. And the disciples do what Anyone who's thinking would do when they've got 5,000 men sitting around, some estimate even up to 20,000, if you count the kids and women, it's getting to be 4 o'clock at night, 5 o'clock at night, Jesus is still going on and on, and there's some people like, yo, bro, you got to give us that benediction, because we hungry, we ready to go, man. I know none of y'all ever thought that here, but that was happening then. And then the disciples are like, oh, I imagine, kind of elbowing each other, like, what are we going to do? I mean, imagine the infrastructure it takes to feed 5,000 or up to 20,000 people. Bamboo Buffet don't have that much walnut shrimp if 20,000 people show up that place. How, what were the disciples going to do? So they go, Jesus, hey man, you should like give them that blessing, tell them to take off so they can go get some food. And then look what Jesus says, it's a surprise again. You give them something to eat, verse 13. Disciples, you feed them. My guess is Peter's making a really funny face at Jesus. That's the same face I got at the buffet with my name tag on. Jesus says, "What? Well, tell me, how much food do you have? We have, uh, we have five loaves and two fish, Jesus. That's what we have. How are we going to feed all these people? Verse 14, Jesus says, have them all sit down in groups of 50. And then look at verse 16. Jesus taking the five loaves and two fish. Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, set before the crowd. Okay, okay. Please look at the text here because there's an important detail. Do you notice it's not Jesus who takes the food and hands it out himself? Who's actually doing the ministry? It's the disciples. Point being, just like when he sent them out without any provisions, here the disciples are totally dependent on Jesus providing again. Do you see the parallel? In, in both situations, here with all this crowd and trying to feed them, it's Jesus who's going to provide what's needed. And the disciples are to take what Jesus has provided and they're going to do Jesus' ministry Jesus' way. And does Jesus provide? Look at verse 17. The whole crowd ate and were satisfied. 
And how much leftovers did they have? They had 12 baskets left over. I'm imagining after everybody's had their fill of the fish and bread buffet, there's something like a laundry basket. There's 12 of them. I don't know where they picked them up at, but the disciples are like, yeah, just put your leftovers in here. And then all the disciples kind of finish up. Everybody's full, and they're kind of looking at each other. I think the 12 is symbolic. Well, I mean, I do think there are actually 12 baskets of leftover food. But for the apostles, they must have been going, one, two, three. And then they're looking at all of them. And they're like, Jesus has more than enough. An, an encouraging word. For anybody who's trying to do Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way, he will always provide more than enough. He'll give you what you need. Hey, pastor, I don't know if Jesus is going to come through for me. Based on the authority of God's word, he will come through. But you got to commit to doing Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way. To try to connect this principle for us today, if, if you're here and you're kind of in the dating phase with Mill Creek, you're like, I kind of like y'all thinking about becoming a member, but not quite there yet, and you're just trying to figure us out, or even if you're just a first-time guest, let, 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 us just, let me just show you our cards. Here's, here's what we do. We take everything that's here in this book, and we do our best to follow Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way. And, and, and that explains, like, the end game for everything. Hey, man, what's your vision for this church? Why, why do you guys do things the way you do? The, the, we, the reason we sing the songs we sing, the reason we pray the prayers we pray, the reason, the reason we preach the way we preach, all of it, the end game is to be faithful to this thing. That's what we're trying to do. We want to do Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way. And sure, there's times where it's like, man, it sure would be easier if we could provide for ourselves some of these things and go out on mission or it sure would be easy if there was an infrastructure to feed the 5,000. At the end of the day, we're just trying to trust Jesus. We're trying to trust his word to guide us in the way we do church. I can nerd out on that a lot longer. If you're interested, come talk to me. But for those of you who are tracking, who think, okay, you're trying to do Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way, well, then tell me this. Jesus' disciples, they were healing people. So why is it you don't do some healing on these Sunday morning deals? I see that you, you, you guys preach here, but why don't you have a healing service too? Again, I can give you the 20-minute answer if you're curious later. The, the short answer is this. I don't find in the New Testament the Great Commission telling us to heal. But the Great Commission does tell us to proclaim. Yes, in our text, there is description of healing, but that doesn't mean it's a prescription for healing. Well, let me try to say it like this. Just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean a church is supposed to do it. Otherwise, every time we had a potluck, we could only have bread and fish, right? <laughs> I ain't coming to that potluck. Well, me neither. <laughs> At the end of the day... We do have positive commands that tell us to go preach the good news. Luke 24, 47 is one of the places Luke captures it where, where Jesus says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus. 
proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Or if you fast forward in Luke's writing to get to the book of Acts, which is Luke part 2, he says in Luke 1.8, you're supposed to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All that to say, we, we host preaching workshops, but we don't host healing workshops because of how we understand the New Testament. Not that I'm opposed to healing. If, if you're sick, I will come pray for your healing. I, I believe healing is possible still, but that explains why we do what we do. It explains why we have services the way we have it, why we're trying to be up here helping you see what the Bible says. It's why we have a plurality of elders. It's why we encourage you to be in a life group. It's why we want you to become a member. I think these are the ways we see you fulfilling. We're trying to fulfill Jesus's instructions. We want to do Jesus's ministry, Jesus's way. That's our heart. That's Luke's first point. Well, that's the first thing then he's put on our plate for us to eat today. Let's move to the second helping of food he puts on. Here's the second big idea. Jesus' disciples believe Jesus is who he says he is. You might have noticed I skipped over verses 7 and 8, so let's go back and catch those real quick. There in verse 7, King Herod hears about Jesus, and, and he's curious about Jesus. He wants to know a little bit more about Jesus, and so he asks some people, who's this Jesus? And they say, he's John the Baptist, reincarnated. If you remember, you were here from earlier chapters in Luke, John the Baptist was killed by Herod. So that's kind of scary that John the Baptist could be back from the dead. <laughs> Others think it's not John the Baptist, they think it's Elijah. He was the greatest of all time prophet in the Old Testament. So that's what they think. Still others would say, no, he's just some other prophet. And Herod then is asking this question, who really is Jesus? He's curious. And while that's great that he's curious, we should note being curious about Jesus isn't enough. Which is to say, some of you here might be curious about Jesus, but it ought not stay at a level of curiosity. You need to drill that answer home. Look at verse 18, where we find Jesus praying and then asking the 12, who, who am I? And do you notice that the 12 give the same answers that Herod got? That linguistically links these two sections. The, the apostles go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're another prophet. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, but who do you say I am? Which church, if, if you don't, if you didn't know, just do my best to shoot you straight. Everybody's going to have to answer that question. You, you need to know the answer to the question, who do you say Jesus is? There is coming a day when all of us will stand before God at judgment, and you will have to answer that question. And the gift that Luke gives us here in this second section is helping us realize we, like the apostles, have to do business with this. And having a King Herod-like attitude is a good start, but it's not enough. Good old Peter answers the question. Jesus says in verse 20, who do you say I am? Peter says, 
the Christ of God, which is his way of saying, Jesus, you are the one the Old Testament has been waiting for. You're the long-awaited Savior. You are the Superman that all of our nation has been hoping would someday get here. You're it. You're it. You're here, and I believe you're really the one. Which is the right answer. Peter answers it right on. Jesus affirming this implicitly by saying, keep my identity a secret for now. And then verse 22, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, Peter understood who Jesus was, but now for the first time in Luke, Jesus is telling us how he will save. And you got to get both of those. If you're here and you're a Christian, you need to know who Jesus is. You also need to understand how he saves. It's at the cross. The point then in the second section is Jesus' disciples believe Jesus is who he says he is. Please, friend, if you show up and you're like, well, pastor, this is what our culture thinks about Jesus. This is who my friends think Jesus is. This is the popular opinion about Jesus. I'm telling you, that's not sufficient. You got to believe what Jesus says about himself. When here at Mill Creek, the way we're trying to apply this principle is, you know, if you've been here for a while, inevitably somebody's going to encourage you, hey, we We'd like you to become a member. But the people that we can welcome into membership of Mill Creek aren't those who, like King Herod, go, Jesus is kind of curious to me, kind of interested to know more. The people that we can welcome into membership at Mill Creek are able to answer the question, who is Jesus and how does he save? And we want all of you to understand that. So much of what we labor to do in this sermon and our preaching and in the way we do services is, is that you would know this is who the Bible says Jesus is, Savior of the world. And he will save you. How? At the cross where he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness for all who would believe in their heart. Jesus Christ is Lord. For all who would confess with your lips, you could be saved. Well, those are the two helpings that Luke has put on our plate so far. We're to do Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way, and disciples believe Jesus is who he says he is. You're consistent with Luke if you grant those two. But there's one more helping that Luke wants to put on your plate. One more menu item, and he's saved the hardest for last. Move with me to verses 23 to 27. Jesus' disciples embrace Jesus' rejection. Look at verse 23. And Jesus, he said to all. He said to all. He's not just talking to the 12. Now he's talking to the crowd. If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What Jesus is explaining here, what Luke is so clear with is, following Jesus means we deny ourselves. Following Jesus means you and I actually pick up our cross and carry it. Now, now I know, we're 2,000 years after this thing, and so many of us think of the cross as like something glorious. But in its context, the cross is horrible. Okay? Okay, the cross is an, it's a torture instrument. Many suggest there's not a more gruesome way to die than on a cross. And here's Jesus, clear as day, saying, if you want to follow me, pick that up and follow me. Look, man, on the Christian buffet, ain't nobody helping themselves to that dish. Me included, I don't like this part. But, but the point couldn't be clearer. There is suffering that Jesus is walking towards. What we find in Luke is, the closer that Jesus gets in proximity to Jerusalem, the closer Jesus gets in proximity to his full and final suffering. And in case you didn't know, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to die on a cross. And, and what happens Chapter 9, verse 51, that, that is changing this whole book is Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the closer in proximity he gets to his rejection. And what I'm trying to tell us today is the closer you and I get in proximity to Jesus, the closer in proximity to our rejection we get. See, here's the deal, friends. Too many of us want to have our cake and eat it too. Oh, yeah, I want to be consistent with the Bible. Oh, yeah, I want to be a Christian. Also, I'd like to have my cake, and I'd like everybody to like me, and I'd like people to pat me on the back and tell me what a wonderful Christian I am, and I'd like the culture to celebrate me and tell me I'm wonderful. Luke's correction for us here. What some may call the fine print of following Jesus is, if you are going to follow Jesus as his disciple, you need to embrace his rejection. Which means, church, people are going to reject you. If you hold on to Christ, the world will let you go. And I think this is one of the sad consequences of the situation we find ourselves. This is, this is one of the sad consequences of, of preachers who skip over this part or churches who want to change the ingredients for this dish. Luke is straightforward and all of you who say, man, I want to follow Jesus. I just want to make sure you get, if you are going to adopt Jesus' way, then you are welcoming his rejection. Christ really does call us to count the cost 
pick up our cross and follow him. Jesus' disciples embrace rejection. And we are willing to surrender whatever it takes to follow him. But having then walked through this text, those are the three foods that Luke has put on our plate, not the foods we would have probably picked for ourselves, but having understood that Christianity isn't a buffet where you get to have it your way, rather we have it Jesus' way, let's move to application. Three applications I'd love for you to write down as we try to take God's word and make it real in our lives. Application number one, if we're going to do Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way, then we have got to share Jesus. Church, if you are going to follow Jesus, you need to share the gospel. In our text, we saw, verse 6, that Jesus sent the disciples out to go share the gospel. And while we already considered that description doesn't equal prescription... What I tried to show you from Luke 24, 47, what I tried to show you from Acts 1, 8, what the Great Commission is so clear about, what Paul makes so explicit in his heart to see churches planted in Romans 15 is is this. Christians are commanded to share Jesus. If, If we had a moment, and I said, are you a Christian? I said, you said, yes. And I said, will you share the gospel? And you said, no, I will not. Truth is, you are in sin. If you are following Jesus, you're commanded to share Jesus. Your will, your way. That's that's the way we approach this thing. If that's what Christ calls me to, then that's what I must do. But perhaps you're thinking, oh, pastor, I'm just so inadequate. Pastor, I don't have the answers. Or I'm not an extrovert, or I'm not that good on my feet, or I'm afraid that people will reject me. Well, here's the deal. Just like the disciples who were told to go out without the basic necessities, and just like the disciples who didn't have to come up with the food themselves, but just had to trust Jesus' provision, you and I are in that same line. Here's the good news. You don't go sharing Jesus on your strength. All of us are scared. Me too. None of this comes easy. Maybe one of you would say, actually, I'm quite gifted at it, and I love it. Man, God bless you, and bottle that and sell it to this church, because we'll buy 400 units of it every Sunday. Frankly, all of us feel like a 13-year-old at a music contest, standing up in front of all of our friends, playing a solo, and our legs are shaking. And that's how I feel like when my neighbors and I start talking about Jesus and I think, well, good grief. I stand up in front of people and tell them they have to do this, so I got to do it too. And my heart starts beating fast and I get nervous and I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. But here's the good news. We don't go out on our strength. We go in his strength. People don't come to know Jesus because we're so gifted at this thing. They come to know Jesus because he's so powerful. 
It's not my strength, it's his strength. And it's not my words, it's his words. And it's not my power, it's Holy Spirit power. Because I didn't invent the gospel, he did. I didn't die for sins, he did. So I'm just out here sharing the good news of what Jesus did. And whatever happens, I don't take the credit for it. Lord knows I didn't do anything right in this deal. It's his power that saves. Just like the disciples had to depend on Jesus to share and do ministry, we do too. Here's a quote from Becky Pippert. I, I love this. Let me read it to you. Here's the great truth. The world desperately needs Jesus, and so do we. Our human weakness is no hindrance to God. He's delighted to use us just as we are, with the questions we can't answer, with our fears and failures. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, church. Go share Jesus. And sure, you're going to fail. And sure, some people are going to reject you. That's the dish that Luke has for us. And yet we do what we're called to do because this is how Jesus' disciples operate. Jesus' disciples do Jesus' ministry Jesus' way. And whatever happens, happens. You're called to share Jesus. That's what we're going to... That's the connection point between Jesus' disciples doing Jesus' ministry, Jesus' way. Here's the connection point between believing Jesus is who he says he is. If we believe that, then we're going to be unashamed of Jesus. Church, back in verse 5, we saw that some would reject the 12 as they were sent out. Do you remember that part where they said, shake the dust off your feet if they reject you? Culturally, Jesus preparing them that when you go share Jesus, some people are going to make fun of you. They're not going to like you. Some will reject you. And in verses 23 to 27, Jesus explicitly calling his followers, be unashamed of me. A promise from verse 26, church, if you're unashamed of Jesus today, he will be unashamed of you on that day, on judgment day, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Church, we don't pick and choose which parts of Jesus we want on our plate. All of us are called to follow him and be unashamed of him. It's your will, your way, Christ. Church, be unashamed of Jesus. Number three, Endure rejection like Jesus. If, if Jesus' disciples embrace Jesus' rejection, then we need to endure rejection like Christ. Look, Paul's right in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, look, if you're here and you're checking this thing out and you don't really know who Jesus is and, and you hear this message that Christ died for your sins, and, and if you're tracking and you go, you mean to do everything I've ever been ashamed of in my life, all of the mistakes I've made, all of the ways that the Bible says I'm a sinner, you're telling me all of that, if I believe in Jesus, will go to the cross and his blood covers my sins? That's weird. That's kind of gross. That's not even fair that his righteousness would be applied to me. That just doesn't make any sense and I don't like it. I don't 
want to have to admit that I need someone outside of myself and I'm not strong enough. If, if you're here and the idea of the cross is a bad taste in your mouth, the Bible promises it is folly to those who are perishing. But if you hear that message and you think, there is hope for me. If you hear that Jesus' death on the cross can actually give you eternal life, then it is power to those who are being saved. And what I'm trying to tell you is if you believe in the power of the cross, and if you believe in the word of the cross, you are going to have to endure rejection like Jesus endured the cross. See, the power that Jesus gave to go preach and heal, the power that enabled Jesus to go to the cross, the power that raised Christ from the dead, that Holy Spirit power is in us. And in view of the Holy Spirit's power in us, we can walk through any rejection the world offers us. So church, don't be surprised when the world rejects you. He was rejected too. We can't have our cake and eat it too. Paul says as much in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So whether it's public mockery, whether it's cultural condemnation, or whether it's getting canceled online or in your neighborhood, this has always been the call of those who follow Christ. So let us adjust our expectations. It's like a case stater walking into Allen Fieldhouse with purple and silver on. You're going to hear about it. Or if you support the Jayhawks and you walk into the octagon of doom, some folks are going to say something. You're in enemy territory. I mean, if you want to experience, put on the orange and blue with me and we'll go to Arrowhead and see what's up. <laughs> if you wear the opponent's colors and you cheer for them at an away game, and if your team ends up winning, the home team don't like you. You're going to be hated, mocked, and, and we expect it. So, we, so if we claim Jesus, we say, fine, malign our reputation. Reject us in relationship. The world can call us every name in the book, but we take comfort that our name is written in the Lamb's book. And there's coming a day when we will be so glad that our colors were true and our profession was clear and our hope was Christ. Christ won't ever cancel those who are in his book. Well, church, are these the menu items we would naturally select? Of course not. But we gladly accept what Christ has dished up for us through Luke in this chapter. Let's share Jesus. Let's be unashamed of Jesus. Let's endure rejection for the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me that he would give us the power? Now, Father... In the name of Jesus, we come before you and we ask that you would give us what we need. Would you grant us grace 
to accept what you have dished up, that we may be made more like you and you would give us the power to do what you require. Provide for us what you require in Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.